This podcast is brought to you by Whites Ferry Road Church. For more information, please visit WFRChurch.org. Good to see everybody. Thank you for being in here. Appreciate it. Uh, got a few weeks here. We're going to study the woman's role, but actually it'll be a whole lot more than the woman's role because you can't really uh, deal with that without dealing with the man, and it's a little unfair just to deal with the women, isn't it? And to uh, uh, this is a study I've probably done, I don't know, four different times since I've been in ministry, and uh, each time I, I learn more and. Uh, which is, I think, a good thing, you know, and I'm still learning. Uh, when we study anything, I think the first thing we have to do is talk about how we look at Scripture, and that's going to be a very important thing. Now, how this class came about this particular time was we did a study on communion. In studying the communion, someone asked about can women be people who serve the tray? And so out of that was propelled the, well, let's look at what the woman's role is. So that's basically how we got here, okay? Uh, how to study the Bible and how to look at Scripture is important. And so this first part that I'm doing, I do before every study I do. I do, if I'm going to study the book of Colossians, I do this first part. If I'm going to study the book of Genesis, I do this first part. I do this in any study I do uh, because how we look at Scripture is so so very, very important. And Scripture guides us and Scripture cuts our hearts and Scripture uh, should mold our behavior and uh, do a number of things to us. Now, there are some overriding, more important lessons when you study something, especially if you study something, woman's role that has some controversy to it. There's something overriding, more important. Unity is more important than the decisions you make about these verses, okay? Yeah. Or that I make, or where I arrive. Unity is more important than that. Uh, attitude and heart is more important. Whether at the end of this study, whether you wind up where I am at the time, and my feet is not in concrete, it's an ongoing study, uh, then what happens is, uh, wherever that is, we have to learn the greater truth of allowing each other to be able to arrive at different points of Scripture and not jettison the body of Christ in doing so. You don't have to... You can dwell in the same family and accomplish great things without agreeing with each other on everything. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that later on, what that means. Uh, Because we tend to be reactionary, and so what happens is we... uh, not meaning to, sometimes we judge people's motives as about why they want to do something. Okay? So, I want to make sure all of us don't do that. Because that's worse than making a bad decision about the woman's role. Okay? Does that make sense to you? Mm-hmm. Alright, so let's first let's talk about how to study the Bible and what it means. That this thing, it's called hermeneutics, but, or how we interpret the Bible, how we look at the Bible, and why it's important. Number one, when we look at a verse, or we look at a scripture, a book, a topic, uh, the first the first thing 
is context. The way I put it, context is king. Now, would you have to understand what a context of, of a scripture that's written? Come on in, guys. And there's different kinds of context. There's historical context. What's going on in history around the the uh, the church when they got this letter? What's happening with them? Uh, are they battling a problem? In Revelation, you have a context of a bunch of churches that are being attacked and what's going on. What's around that? It's huge to understand in the book. Uh, in Ephesians, you have a context of where a church that's existed for a while that's struggling with some things. So each of these kinds of situations have context and there's history around them. So that's that's huge to understand that to know why he's writing something. Then there, so there's his, there's historical, and then there's literary. By literary, I mean what kind of literature is it? You don't treat a letter from Paul to a church like you treat the book of Proverbs. Uh, matter of fact, we've run into struggles with that. If you want to try to take the principles of Proverbs and treat them like the Ten Commandments, you're going to run into problems. Like if you raise up a child in the way he should go, what? He'll not depart from it. But do they? They do. You better look at the difference between what's principle and proverb, the type of literature, and then what's law, Ten Commandments. You've got law. You, you break this, you break the law, right? A law is a particular kind of literature. And you've got letters. Paul writes to the Philippians. And so you've got a letter written to a church. And so there's a context around that. Uh, you've got Acts. It's a book of history of how the church just developed and grew. Written by a doctor named Luke, who also wrote the book of Luke. Which, by the way, you find you know, much more detail in the doctor's deal than you do in Mark or Matthew from the other Gospels, right? Because that's the kind of the, the God, the Holy Spirit moved those men along but also used their personality and history as they wrote the books. And so you must look at historical context, you must look at literary context. So the Psalms. You don't deal with the Psalms the way that you deal with the Ten Commandments. They're different types of literature. They're all inspired. They're all important. They all have things to say to our life. But how you approach them uh, makes a difference. So what the big thing out of context we must ask then what did it mean then and there before we ask what does it mean here and now. Some of y'all heard this before. We must ask, what did it mean then and there to those people? Before we ask, what does it mean here and now? That keeps us from violating and misusing Scripture. Some people's favorite Scripture, especially kids' favorite Scripture, will be, uh, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So two guys are sitting there working out and they're lifting. One guy saying, come on, come on. You can do all things to Christ who gives us strength. Oh, really? Well, then add 100 more pounds on each side. Yes. Right? No. Why? That's not why that verse is written. That's not the context of the verse. And so uh, the verses get misused. That's why I encourage people, when you memorize Scripture, don't memorize verses. Memorize paragraphs. 
because paragraph will give you a fault and it gives you a little a little bit more of the context than just a verse and so that's huge important when we interpret scriptures now uh, for example we take up the collection on Sunday mornings uh, at least I hope we do <laughs> and we we pass the plate right and as we pass the plate Sometimes I've heard it read out of Corinthian passage where Paul told him to set aside a portion, uh, you know, each week. Set aside a portion each week. So when I come, what? You know the context? So when I come, I don't have to go around and gather it up from everybody. Could he go around and gather it up from everybody? Sure. What's more practical? We guys are getting together every week. Take it up when you get together. Is he talking about the church budget? No. No, he's not talking about the church budget. He's talking about gathering up a whole contribution for a bunch of poor saints in Jerusalem that you ought to be obligated to help because after all, they brought you the gospel. If it's anything that compares them, it's more like what we do on Sunday for our own benevolent needs except they were doing it for another church. So, to all of a sudden, though, make a jump to say... You have to take up a contribution on Sunday out of that passage is a misuse of the passage. Is it okay that we take one up? Sure. Why? He's not telling them how to do church. In that context. He's not telling them. We could take it up through small groups. We could take it up any way we wanted to. We could take it up every time we meet, which basically we do now, I think, with red buckets and everything else, right? So, but some of those contributions are for different purposes. So he's not writing that to teach you how to do church on Sunday. So what we have to be careful is somehow or another we take that and not understand its context and make some application that's not right. So first thing about context, there's historical and there's literary context. We must ask what did it mean then and there before what we asked before we ask what does it mean here and now. <laughs> It's going to be huge to our study and, the, and, and, and our approach to Scripture. What did Paul write this far? Then and there. What's going on? Or whoever the writer is, whatever book you're studying. And what and then what does it mean to us here and now? Because there's application to our library. We wouldn't have left it for us, right? Sure. I mean, it's live. It's living word. It's God's word. It's inspired. So context. The second thing is aim. And by aim, what I mean is the author's intended meaning. <clears throat> what did the author, what was he trying to get across when he writes something? This is why you can never decide an argument on one definition of a word. Uh, he uses the word worship sometimes and is describing out of Psalms about singing praises to God. He uses the word worship in Romans 12 that has to do with your whole life. Of whether you, how, you know, how you work, how you live your life out. And it's not just a corporate thing. So, uh, uh, and it's actually the word for serve, you know, or the word <laughs> been down and kiss, proskuneo, the worship. So, you have those kinds of So, uh, you can't take a definition and decide a context. 
Here, here's what I tell people typically about, because we'll deal with some Greek words and Greek terms, but I don't, I don't want to get hung up on it too much. For, for example, just to throw it out, we'll deal with it in another class, but the word for man and the word for woman is the same word he uses for the word for wife and the word for husband. Okay, so how do I know, how do, what do the translators do, or, or people who do different versions do, how do they decide when he will use the word wife or woman here? You know, a wife submit to your husband. Says, Lord, why didn't you use the word woman? Why didn't you use the word wife? It's the same word in the Greek. There's not two different words for wife and woman. So, but can I build an entire argument on that? Well, I don't know. I mean, you have to really be careful because the, uh, I, here's what defining Greek words do for me. They're not going to... Like you have a picture. You look at a, a framed up picture and you see something. You kind of see typically what the picture means. But the Greek sometimes will bring out details and that that enhance the picture, but it won't change the whole, it doesn't turn the picture off, upside down. Does that make sense? Yeah. So in other words, I, just, I don't want us to think somehow or another that because I'm not, now studying in the original language has a lot of benefit, and I appreciate scholars who do that, because they bring in the detail more, and they make me think about things that I have not, I've not looked at, and I've not reflected about, and, and I'm not seeing, they make some things clearer sometimes, and they give me options that I didn't know were there because of a definition. But I don't think there's anything magical about defining a Greek term or a Hebrew term that somehow or another is going to change the greater picture in the Bible. In other words, I think God is smart enough to leave us translations where we can still get what he wants us to understand. That doesn't mean we, we don't delve into it. I think we should. We need scholars that do that. We have some to do that. That's not my field, you know. I appreciate and give from them what I can. Uh, there are guys uh, uh, way smarter than I am who studied this over and over who still wind up on different sides of, of, of verses about what they think something teaches, and they're experts in the original language. So uh, that that's the other thing is there's a tendency to think something's very simple <coughs> when you haven't studied it or you've only studied it from a viewpoint to defend what you already believe. There's a tendency to think it's really simple. I want to beg you, don't do that. Because not only in this area, but in other areas of the scripture, you're going to miss out on some good stuff. Uh, and I did that for a long time. I studied to argue my point. This, this study that we're going to do in the next few weeks is not going to be to prove, to convince you of my point. Right? If you arrive where I end up arriving at in a study, that's that's fine. If you don't, that's fine too. I, I'm not the smartest person in the room. I just want to share with you where I am in my study. But in doing that, I've got to at least think about how I approach Scripture. So I've got to look at context. What did it mean then and there before I say what does it mean here and now? I've got to look at the author's intended meaning. What did he have in mind when he's writing this? Can I tell that from other things he's written toward that same church? What's the author's intended meaning? The other thing is that Scripture has a center of gravity. Scripture has a center of gravity. 
Now this is going to be huge because this this messed us up as a brotherhood for oh, so long. You know what I hate about the most? Good people got hurt. And honest people were forced to make decisions about people's salvation when they didn't need to. Satan, boy, did a number on us with divisiveness because we didn't understand this principle. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. You know the verse. What's the greatest command? Love the Lord your God. Love the Lord your God by your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. It's the greatest. That means other commands are not as great. Got it? Matthew 23. 23. Somebody just flip over and read that one. More important than that? Yeah. Matthew 23. 23. Or punch that up on your phone or whatever way you're looking at. 23, 23? Yeah. Well, you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Okay. So he says, <coughs> you did these that were, by the law, by, Pharise- by the Pharisaical Jewish law, you, did, you kept these. But you neglected, or as the KJV says, weightier matters of the law. Are you listening? (coughs) All scripture is important, but not all scripture weighs the same. Now, we didn't understand that in years past. And as a result, every time we come across something we thought was right that somebody else thought was wrong, we divided the church over whether it was having Bible class or whether it was drinking out of one container or whether it was having a kitchen in the building or not or uh, uh, whether we could support orphans out of the treasure. I mean, if you have any kind of a church of Christ background, you recognize some of that stuff. Others of you are sitting there saying, I don't have a clue what you're talking about. I'm, I'm glad you don't. Okay? Because we divided, and that became our MO for how we handled disagreements. That if I got a group of people believe what I believed, and we were off, and somebody else didn't believe that. Well, then we just pulled out, and started our own church. But that circle gets smaller and smaller and smaller if you get to know the people you're with very long, <laughs> right? <laughs> now, this is why Scripture having a center of gravity is so important, <clears throat> because the greatest command, and then you have the First uh, Corinthians 15. The gospel is of first importance that means other things are not first now I, I, I just I just finished uh, reading a book that uh, actually Trey and Gordon a couple of them told me about the three authors Matt Chandler's one of them about uh, called Creature of the Words about Jesus in the church and uh, in it he makes a great point he says the gospel is not everything but the gospel impacts everything. And that's true. Now, the gospel is of first importance. So, so like, uh, like on our staff, I tell them, look, guys, we want to make decisions like this. Does this help us accomplish the greatest command, 
and this help us accomplish the Great Commission. When we make decisions about direction and missions and whatever, we're trying to accomplish those two things to make sure those always happen. That's a center of gravity. Now, we've understood it in sin that sin had different weights. We just didn't think about it on the the good side. You steal my bicycle, which has been done before. You make me mad. You steal my kid. That's a heavier thing. Oh, my kid's all stealing. No, 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 no. Not to me. Right? And not to you either. You understand that? So, Scripture has a center of gravity wrapped up in the greatest command and the greatness of the gospel because the gospel story doesn't start uh, in Matthew and Luke. It starts before Genesis when God decided in his mind way Ephesians says way positive way before the creation of the world how he was going to redeem mankind by the good news of the gospel. God already had it planned out. That's why in Romans 1, 16 when he talks about the gospel is the power of God to salvation Everyone that believes it, everybody knows that verse. Most people don't don't memorize the second verse. For therein, in the gospel, is the righteousness of God revealed. And then he quotes the Old Testament, right? From faith to faith. Just as it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel reveals, it pulls back the curtain. And now we look and say, ah, oh, that's how God did it. Because in old times it looked like, God, how could you save Abraham when I know he sinned and lied? And how could you save David and Satan could make those accusations? How could you save them? I'll tell you how you could save them. By the gospel. We mean by the gospel. The gospel revealed. It was always there. But the, God, but the gospel reveals how God was righteous when he saved those guys. He had already paid for their sins by the blood of Christ because he crucified Christ in his mind before the creation of the world. Isn't that great? Amen. That's good news. And let me tell you something. That's a whole lot more exciting and great than whether a woman can hand a tray or not. It really is. It's a weightier matter. That doesn't mean other things don't need to be studied. I just want to keep them in their proper perspective. So there's a weightier matter. There's a center of gravity to the scriptures. And, 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 and the scriptures tell you that. He tells you some things that are heavier, things that are weightier, things that we need to spend more time on than others. And I love doing the study. I love digging in and studying stuff, and I don't mind sitting and kicking back and letting, and, and, and people making arguments, and, and, and especially when we're in school of preaching. We love to do that. We've got a lot out of that. But at the same time, there are more important things to me. I, I can't do that eight hours a day. I've got some folks that have a lot greater needs than that <coughs> in life. And so I just want to keep it in perspective. Uh, so the other thing, let's see, I'll go over here. Is we must make an effort to be full of grace and truth. Jesus came. The Bible says, John one, he came full of what? Grace and truth. We're to be like Jesus. Well, we can't be like Jesus in every aspect. But we will make an effort to be like Jesus. We want to also be people who are moving in the direction of being full of grace and truth. What does that mean? Because the word truth, by the way, is used a couple of different ways. Remember we said you worship me in spirit and in truth? 
Actually, the word truth there doesn't mean just doctrine. It means the authenticity of the heart. A truthful heart, a sincerity of the heart. A true heart, if you will. That's, that's the definition of the word. So it's not just about outside information that doesn't affect me. It's also about the honesty of my heart. So I want, I want to look at things full of grace and truth. Look, grace must cover my lack of intelligence as well as my bad behavior or I'm in trouble. Unless you're going to claim to know all the Bible perfect, then you and I better be ready to give each other and people outside us grace as we arrive at truth. Look, Gary Glenn's sharp. He's a lot smarter than I am. He studies a section of scripture. He's going to arrive at stuff that I studied the same amount, it may he may arrive at it in five days. It may take me thirty days. Now between that five and thirty, does he have the right then to say, "All right, now look how wrong and sinful you are. You're wrong on this. You false teacher." No. No. So, but we've done that in the past. Matter of fact, we we quote guys in Restoration history and use them like a battering ram. That I know I could swing the bat of. Of Campbell, I'll explain the bat of Bart W. Stone and his out of the park because if I could quote those guys that we raised up, unfortunately, higher than they needed to be, I appreciate all they did. But look, they're not God. And they got some things wrong. And they, that they had great hearts. Stone was much more of a charismatic preacher. He's afraid, like, God may come today. Let's get him in the head. I mean, he was much more of that kind of fiery guy. Campbell was much more educated. Uh, very, very, very successful, very wealthy guy. He was much more. He argued from a law viewpoint. Uh, picked up this old bad hermeneutic about command, uh, inference, and example. Well, you know what? If you got a command, you don't need an example or inference. But, but the problem is that the that that came by the way out of English law. That didn't come out of the Bible. So what happened was we had to go back and decide how do we handle Scripture. <coughs> and I'm not saying I I. I I understand it all or have it all down right. I'm just sharing with you through these classes where I am in my study, okay? As honestly as I can. So, but these affect how you approach other subjects. So be full of grace and truth. Grace must cover my bad theology as well as my bad behavior. Otherwise, I'm really, I'll become a tyrant with my intellect. And that ends up basically being legalism. Okay? All right. Number five, when we look at a text, we must look for a harmony among other texts. Does it fly in the face of some other simple text somewhere that's very understandable? Does it fly in the face of, I mean, are the, how do these text, if two things look like they say different things, how are they harmonized? Because we know they're not contradicting each other, so we have to look at other sections of scripture and say how does this harmonize with what somebody says over here you've got Paul you got Paul saying something about a woman not being permitted to teach how do you harmonize that with Paul saying teach and admonish one another with psalms his spiritual songs oh so she can't teach well, I, mean, I thought he said she couldn't okay how does that, how do you work those in harmony alright so that those are some things we'll wrestle with and struggle with okay and uh, how do, you, how do you do this? Uh, how do you do this thing where uh, uh, where a woman is to be silent in submission, and yet you got Anna 
the prophet is announcing the birth of Jesus and the temple courts to all a mixed group of people. Or you've got Hilda, or you've got Deborah, or you've got Isaiah's wife, or you've got Miriam, or you've got the four daughters of Philip, or you've got the scripture in Acts that says your sons and daughters will prophesy. How do you harmonize those verses? Because I guarantee you there's a whole lot more that says they did speak than the two that says they didn't. So somehow or another, I've got to, I've got to handle Scripture in a way that those don't violate each other. Again, it's going to, that's why context is important. That's why the author's aim is important. That's why center of gravity is important. Uh, one more thing about, I really should have done probably uh, this earlier opinion, but I want to look at Matthew 12 for a minute and look at something else about center of about interpretation of scripture. This is just to, again, show us the danger. You know, bad theology makes you ask the wrong question. Remember in John chapter 9, the disciples came upon a man born blind and they said, uh, Jesus, who sinned? What? This man or his parents? And what's wrong with that question? They had a bad theology to begin with. That's why they asked it. Because they had a theology that said if someone was handicapped or blind, then it was because of sinfulness somewhere. So that's why they asked that question. Does that make sense? Because they believe something wrong, they asked the wrong question. And he says, you got it wrong, guys. This right here happened because God's going to be glorified. What? I thought it happened because somebody sinned. No. Why? You looked at it from the wrong way to begin with. So in Matthew 12, verse 1, at the time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, his disciples were hungry and began to pick some heads of grain and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. So you know their view, by the way, of the scriptures were legal. They were lawyers, by the way. Not that that's a bad thing. <laughs> he answered now look at this phrase haven't you what read. read what David did when his companions were hungry he entered the house of God and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for them to do but only for the priests verse 5 or what haven't you read twice he says in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple desecrate the day and yet are innocent. I tell you that one greater than the temple is here. If you had known what? What these words mean. Haven't you read? Haven't you read? If you had known what it meant. You looked at these verses and you did not interpret them correctly. You didn't know what they meant. What happened? As a, what did you do as a result of not... You read it and you read them, but you didn't interpret them correctly. What was the end result of your bad hermeneutics? Look what he says. If you had known what these words mean, then he tells them the words, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. You would not have condemned the innocent. If you had known that God desired mercy instead of that law keeping, 
you wouldn't have condemned the innocent. We come along 2,000 years later and have a bad approach to Scripture in some areas and we condemn every religious group out there but us. I'm not saying we people in this room. You understand that? I'm saying there's a movement in a general sense. And we condemned innocent people because we misunderstood scriptures. We misunderstood grace. We misunderstood the gospel. We called things that were gospel not gospel. Now the reason it is because we had a bad approach to scripture. These are good hearted people that did it. But they had a bad approach to scripture. They looked at scripture like a puzzle. Anybody get a puzzle for Christmas? Please don't buy me one. I do not have the patience to put a puzzle together. I mean, you know, I, you know, puzzles drive me crazy. I mean, Susan, she can figure those things out, and Josh can't. I'm like, okay, get me out of here. I'm about three minutes. I'm done with that. I got about as much patience putting a puzzle as Randy Randy Kirby does in an elders meeting. You know, let's get this thing over, right, Randy? Randy's here. I can say that. He's like, we get off target. I can see Randy's like, come on, let's get back on target. Let's get this thing you know, going. I got that much patience. I mean, so here's how theology got or was done by some of our folks. It was what what some call pattern theology or pattern hermeneutics. We bought into a principle through Campbell and those guys that we should restore New Testament Christianity. It's basically, you know, it's never in the Bible. It never says to do that. But the idea is good in the sense that it makes you look at what was going on then and there. I love that part of it. The problem was, we looked at the Bible like a big puzzle piece that was dumped out and mixed up, and so we're going to go back through the Bible and pick up pieces and put them together in slots and fit them. And when we get that picture of what the New Testament church was, then we're there. We've restored New Testament Christianity. So big things, examples became big things to us, like how we, do we do communion every first day of the week? Well, yeah, why? Well, we found a church that says on the first day of the week when they gather together, by the way, it never says that you have to do it every first day of the week. That's our own reading into the text from a restoration's eyes. The Bible doesn't say that. Or nor does it say it's the only time you can take it. But we read into that because of our background. Everybody comes to the scripture with glasses on, <laughs> including me, that colors are view of scripture so we read into that well they did it so we must do it if we want to be a church like them okay so we start taking communion every Sunday which I think is a great thing and I think it's right on target I mean I, I think it's, it's healthy it's good I think it's, it's good right? Uh, uh, I don't condemn someone that takes it more than that That's not, there's not a verse that does that but okay well, so we're looking for a pattern okay how did they sing well you know back then they, they sang we, by the way, we assume this historical argument from one from what the definition of one Greek word, by the way, acapella, that they sing without instruments. Of course, we don't want to pick up the verses before where they sang with instruments, right? So we go where they sang. I love acapella. I have no intention of ever us doing anything great. Now, if I thought if I thought playing the guitar would baptize 150 more people today, I'd bring mine from the house. I do have one, by the way. I haven't played in a long time, but I have one. And so, uh, but but that's not that, that doesn't it doesn't work like that. 
But we found that. We thought, okay, here's an example. They sang a cappella, let's sing. Let's restore that, okay? What else are we going to restore? Well, we don't want to call ourselves what anybody else is called. We don't want to call ourselves Methodist, Baptist, Catholic, or whatever any other religious group might be. So we're just going to call ourselves the Church of Christ. And we're going to be non-denominational. So we may, basically, we said that out loud hundreds of times while we function as a denomination. <laughs> but we said we're not one. The only thing that made it different was we, re- we really don't have a hierarchy organized. We have one that tries to tell the churches what to do, but it's just it's not a formal one, a traditional one, you know. Uh, but so all of a sudden, you know, we're okay. We got the name, we got the order of worship. Uh, you do five acts of worship. Remember what the, anybody was taught here? Five acts of worship besides me. <coughs> what were you taught about? What were they? No, no, five acts of worship. Five acts of worship was was singing, singing, praying, praying preaching, preaching, uh, Lord's Supper, communion. We're going to throw you out of the church. <laughs> Anybody else? Huh? Giving. Giving. Who said that? Imagine, I forgot that one. Giving. <laughs> Randy, would you talk to him? That's a selective memory. Okay. So then, because we had that theology going into trying to discover those things, who came up with that? Yeah, who came up with it? I don't know who came up with the total five because at different times in restoration history, different guys had like four or three or Campbell, Stone, some of those guys. I'm not sure what each one of them came up with on it. Uh, I just know I was taught it very strong. And although I was never taught it consistently because we never did all five of those things at all assemblies. Never did that. But it was, and then that those became, by the way, markers of how you identified the true church. I have preached that sermon, by the way, how to recognize the true church. And it was you worship right and you do, and I, and I, I, I preached that, unfortunately. I preached it wrong. There are greater markers of a true church. Like, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples. That you... Yeah. So we'd argue and fight and divide over one of these and then say, hey, look at this. This is the new church. No. I think the arguing and fighting probably already told me you're struggling with being a true church. So anyway, but we would come up with that because this idea that we've got to search the scriptures, it's a big puzzle piece, we put them all together to make one picture and we reproduce that, then we're there. And everybody that didn't agree with us, what? Now here's the extreme response. Not that we say they just weren't members of our church. We said they were going to hell. And I have an aunt. Bless her heart. Remember, say it if you say bless your heart, right? Of course she's dead. So. My Aunt Ray, she would tell you right off the bat, Oh, you ain't in the Church of Christ. No, you, there's no way you're getting there. I mean, she would just tell you right out. But I'm like, I'm like cringing. Don't you know? Do you have to say it loud? I'm trying to study with somebody, ease them into the truth. You're just boom, you know. So, but she really believed that, and she wasn't a bad-hearted person. But she'd been taught this all of her life. And so, what what happened? All of a sudden, then, when someone didn't agree, it became a in or out. Your head. Not only that, we judged their motives and called them. This is when they 
because this is another one we miss. We call them false teachers. Now, when you look at the context of false teachers in the Bible, it's not people who misunderstand the Word of God. If that's true, all of us are false teachers. False teachers had motives. In Timothy and in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the Antichrist, they were against Jesus being God in the flesh. It wasn't that they held some of the doctrine wrong. It wasn't that they didn't believe in acapella music or Lord's Supper. It wasn't that. So we make, we make intellectual disagreement. We attach it to false teaching because somehow or another that gives us a bigger weight to throw around and carry in our argument. Please don't do that. If you arrive at a different spot than I do on a subject, don't all of a sudden claim that now I have bad motives and I'm a false teacher because I misunderstand the scripture. Please, please love me. Give me some grace. But don't condemn me and attach a motive to me that I'm a false teacher. That's not, that's not, that's not healthy. It's not useful. It's not right. And don't do that to religious people out there either. Now, I'm not saying that false teachers can't exist and can't even come in, into the body like they did, and that's one of the things the elders have to do is to keep an eye about what's going on and what the teaching that takes place and, and make sure that, uh, that false teachers don't come in and take people away from the gospel. That's what they'll take you away from, by the way. In Galatians 1, it's the gospel that they're changing. They're not changing your belief on how often you pass the, the Lord's Supper. Remember, they're going to change. They're going to change this thing of most important. They're going to change the center of gravity of the text. So understand, people who different than you believe different than you do on some subject are not necessarily false teachers. They may be inadequate teachers. They may be people who don't understand scriptures. But that does not do not give them the motive and heart of a false teacher. That's not using God's word correctly either, because those things have context to them. Okay, so, but anyway, back to this pattern of theology that we had. So yeah, we, we're going to form a pattern. We're going to discover everything that's, that's uh, right or wrong by the fact of, uh, of putting together all this information. That ignores, that ignores the center of gravity of Scripture. As a result, we split the body over a variety of issues and condemned each other doing it. And it's our biggest black eye in the restoration history is our divisiveness. And I, I'm sorry for that. And I apologize for past leaders who have done that. And I don't ever want to do that. I want to be full of grace and truth. I want to give someone grace because God gave me grace when I didn't understand Scripture. I need to be able to give that grace to someone else instead of somehow or another lording over them my greater intellect. I can't do that with Scripture. That's not, that's not how God designed it. You don't see Jesus handling Scripture that way even. Now he accuses the Pharisees of doing it. But that's not how we can be. It doesn't match the spirit of Christ. So in our study, wherever we end up, in this or any other study, if it's not violating the greatest command, if it's not violating the gospel, then please do not elevate 
a subject to a greater level than what the Bible puts it at. Don't make everything gospel, but let gospel impact everything you study. And we'll, we'll be okay. So look, I want, the other thing that affects our interpretation of Scripture is our fears. Very normal. I mean, anytime you change something, I remember one time we changed a uh, uh, house, uh, I think it was serving back from the front. This was in Kaufman, actually, when I preached over there. And uh, a lady come later and told me she was really struggling, Mike, with change. I said, well, you know, actually, we hadn't hardly changed anything, but she was, just, she was worried about it. And she was, you know, it's the slippery slope idea, right? And, and I'm not saying that's good or bad. I'm just saying that's where she was. And because she had the greatest heart in the world. She said, I feel like I come to church. She said, I feel like I, like, like I do if I, go, if I went home and somebody moved all my furniture around. Well, that's a real emotional feeling for her. Right? I mean, that's a real comfort thing. I mean, that's a real unstabling feeling if you went in and found that. And so if you go in your church family and, and, and things change too quickly, and sometimes us leaders, we do that. You know, we, we have to be careful about that. And so all of a sudden, you, you make changes or something in how you function, especially in an assembly, because that's, that's where it all focuses, right? You can basically believe what you want to as long as you don't practice it in the assembly. We won't get on you about it. Honestly, I mean, that's how we are. And that, that's a natural thing. I understand that. And so, but, but I said, but babe, here's the problem. Somehow I've got to help move her from her stability being in the structure of the assembly and move it back to what Ephesians 4 says where her maturity and stability is in the Savior, not the structure. When your stability is in the gospel and in the Savior and you know that doesn't change, that's what all of a sudden gives you stability. But we've been taught all our lives the other way. So we won't let go of that easily it's like a root canal you know I mean yeah it's it's hard <laughs> and so so one of the things that has to happen for us in our study of a particular subject is to back away and say we while we study this we're not going to violate other verses we're not going to violate the gospel we're not going to violate our love for one another we're not going to violate support and encouragement for one another. we're not going to violate unity but you make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Okay? So we won't make sure we don't want to violate those. The other thing, the Holy Spirit is still alive and well. Amen. And He lives inside us. And I think deep prayer uh, and dependence on the Spirit and what He wrote down has to be a part of our hermeneutic. That means our attitude must be one of humility as we approach the scriptures, understanding that I don't always have it right, but God's spirit in me is greater than my intellect, and it'll get me to where I need to be to live for him. That has to be a part of our harmony. That our honesty with our own hearts has to be a part of it. Our humility, not going there to prove a point, and as hard as it is to wipe away, you can't totally wipe away what you believe. I wouldn't want you to. But to somehow or another, remove it far enough from your heart to give you room to relook at something in any study, not just this one, in any study, is huge. 
I guarantee you, when you, the more you're exposed to other people's studies, the greater room you have to allow yourself to grow. Because you start seeing other people's mindsets that are different. Can you ever imagine why someone who can, uh, let me take the extreme, why a church can uh, support homosexuality and have and, and that be a part of their church family and they support that, gay marriage and that kind of thing? And they're in a church. Because you're thinking, if you're thinking like me, I'm thinking, there ain't no way they'd be going to church. Oh, yeah, they're in church. Why? How do you get to that point? Because we want to say, well, they don't believe the Bible. Oh, no, they believe the Bible. They have a perspective and a hermeneutic, a way of interpreting the Bible that they've approached from the viewpoint of their culture that allows them to arrive at what they want to do and how they want to live. And we accuse them of that, and I think properly so. If you look at, if you look at some of the, uh, and actually, I mean, there's some great writers that book the, the, the gay hermeneutic, how the gay community approaches the Bible. There's a whole deal about that, by the way. Uh, there's also a whole other one, the black hermeneutic. Why, why, why people of color see the Bible different than we see it and if you don't think of that, just visit. Sunday is the most segregated day in the United States. And there's a reason. Even our approach to Scripture is different. Even within churches of Christ, by the way. And so there are reasons that so they approach the Scripture. So when we back up and say, look, let's check how we approach the Scripture, that's a vital, important question. And we have to do it with humility. And we have to do it with honesty. Uh, and we have to do it with a commitment to say, I'm going to... Uh, I'm, I'm going to avoid dogmatism and I'm going to hold conclusions loosely in areas that aren't gospel. Because even though I may be convicted now, look, I guarantee you, I don't believe right now what I believed 20 years ago about some verses in the Bible. Uh, and I didn't throw away my Bible. I didn't tear out any scriptures. <laughs> but I had some great teachers that opened some things up to me that I'd never thought before. So I know that'll be a challenge to us but we have to bring humility and honesty to the scriptures when we study something because what I don't want to do I don't want to go to Matthew 12 and find my name in there that because I did not understand mercy I condemned innocent people and I do not want to my path as, as a minister when I go to be at the Lord I don't want to look down my back the path and see brothers and sisters falling off the side in the ditch one way or another because somehow or another I taught some form of something that was con- that I condemned brothers, uh, that I condemned men, or I condemned women, and that I wasn't honest with God's word. So that's this is the jumping off point. And we'll wrestle with all the verses in your mind that first come to mind in about the about the woman's role what to do. But but if we don't if we don't make sure that we kind of have our approach to Scripture down, we will fall into some bad habits that we've picked up and don't even know we have from our history. And so I want to be sure and don't do that. The pattern theology is terrible because it does not consider the weightier matters of the law. It does not consider the gospel is more important than other things. And we want to make sure that we minimize not the importance of verses. All verses are important. All truths are important. But all truth does not weigh the same. And, and look, frank, frankly, I'm not going to put the study of the woman's role where the gospel is. I ain't going to do it. That's right. 
I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to, I'm not, it's, it doesn't belong there. It's worth studying. There's some verses. But, but it can, but the gospel gets my stability, not the woman's rod. So I'm going to, I try to, I got to bring that thing back down in its context, relook at it, be honest with the scriptures, and we'll just wrestle with them. And everybody in here won't be on the same page, but it'll be okay. We're not going to put the all the people who think she can do one thing sit over here, and all the people who think she can't sit over here. We're not going to do that. All right, that's that's not how the body of Christ functions. Ephesians four. We'll close with this. He gave some to be apostles, which instantly everybody says, "Hey, they were all men, right?" By the way, just a little nugget: they were all Jews too, <laughs> and they were all white. So no. No black man can be a apostle. No black man could ever have had that role. No white man. I mean, no Gentile could. I mean, just throw that in your brain a little bit. They're all apostles. They're, you have some of the apostles, prophets. A little harder one to deal with because you actually have women prophets. But I don't think that's what he's talking about in this context. And I'll explain why I believe that later. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor teachers, by the way. That's the, the combination word. It's not two different things happening there pastor teachers shepherds that teach and feed the flock guide the flock I think that's a particular thing he says I gave all those for a purpose to grow the body to build the body up to be like Jesus and mature it until it comes where it can even build itself up in love that's the whole passage of Ephesians 4 leadership has to help the body mature to a point that they can even help each other mature Right? And so as as leaders and shepherds, that's how we want to feed the flock. To grow up, mature in love, building each other up, not tearing each other down. Alright? Father, we love you. Thank you for the day. Thank you for your word. May we be committed to it. May we trust you. May you give us wisdom. You said you would give us wisdom, Father, if we ask in James. And we're asking for wisdom and discernment as we wrestle with verses and as we look at subjects that sometimes seem to threaten us sometimes are difficult to understand Father help us uh, as we do it not to forget when we walk out here we meet visitors there's something much greater in their life than this issue and it's about Jesus being Lord of their life help the gospel to keep its proper place love for one another keep its proper place as we work and study together in Jesus name Amen. Love you. We'll dig next week. This has been a presentation by Whitesbury Road Church. For more information, please visit wfrchurch.org.